My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this day. Episode 5, Empty Chairs at Empty Tables If the time in history I inhabited was defined by AIDS, the place that defines AIDS for me has always been New York. I was often sent to New York for short assignments when I was in Chicago working my way through university as a Russian translator. My best friend at the time, Stevie, was the first person I watched from beginning to end as he went through his slow, grueling decline. Day by day, AIDS slowly drained the life from him, first in Chicago, and then later when he moved to New York. It was during one of these quick work trips to New York that I found Stevie in Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan's posh Upper East Side. I was shocked when I walked in and saw that Stevie had been reduced to that skeletal look of a Holocaust survivor. No person in their 20s should ever look like that. No person in their 20s should be used to seeing their friends look like that. But tragically, it was a look we knew all too well. I asked him how he was, but his lungs were so full of fluid he began to cough uncontrollably every time he tried to talk. After a few minutes of this, I went to the front desk and asked why he didn't have an oxygen mask. They ignored me. I became more and more agitated, and before I knew it, I was yelling. A man I love is dying of pneumonia. He's drowning in his own lungs, and he needs an oxygen mask. This is a hospital. Get him a fucking mask. Now. They called the security guard, who told me if I didn't stop, he would call the police and have me arrested. Fine, arrest me. I'm in the news business, and I'll make sure the morning newspapers publish what's going on here. You are denying a pneumonia patient oxygen, and it looks like you're doing it because he has AIDS. When the police arrived, I thought, by God, they can fucking arrest me, but I am not shutting up until Stevie has what he needs. I heard someone with a heavy Jamaican accent say, Wait, give me a minute. I felt a warm, firm hand on my shoulder, and I whipped around to give the cop a menacing glare and show him I had no intention of backing down. That's when I saw the sweet face of a large black woman who had her hand on my shoulder. Tears streaming down her face, she said, Sweetie, don't you get it? We're nurses. Of course we want to help your friend. But we don't have enough oxygen to go around. We were told we can only give oxygen to the patients we can help. I am so sorry, sweetheart, but your friend is going to die. And if we give him oxygen, we'll be fired. Can you imagine what that's like for us? Every one of us volunteered to work in the AIDS ward. We took pay cuts to be here. We chose to spend our lives helping people like your dear sweet friend Stevie, and now we'll be fired if we do. I fell sobbing into her arms, and the two of us just cried. I kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, oh my god, I'm so sorry. The entire time I'm thinking to myself, this could only happen in Reagan's America. Nowhere else in the civilized world was a scene like this even remotely conceivable. But it was playing itself out in urban hospitals all over the country. For the first six years of Ronald Reagan's presidency, the Reagan administration only mentioned AIDS twice in public. 
Reagan's press secretary referred to AIDS in the morning press briefing as the gay plague. On the two occasions journalists asked him a serious question about AIDS, the press secretary jokingly said, why, are you worried you might have it? During a ceremony to rededicate the Statue of Liberty, with President Reagan and French President François Mitterrand in attendance, the MC made a joke about AIDS. The camera panned to show the audience reaction, and we saw Nancy and Ronald Reagan laughing hysterically while President François Mitterrand and his wife Danielle looked on in utter horror and disbelief. What Americans didn't understand was that the whole of Europe, as well as the rest of the civilized world, found America's response to AIDS shocking, and were disgusted by what was happening in America. We were desperately fighting for our lives, but we were fighting the good fight. We were fighting on the side of the angels, on the side of righteousness. We confidently understood that in time, everyone would come to see this. But at that point, we were still fighting very much alone. I couldn't let Stevie see me like this, so I left the hospital and walked down Park Avenue, crossed over to Central Park, and then walked all the way to Columbus Circle and back. I must have been gone a couple of hours. When I got back to the hospital, it was well past visiting hours, and everything was quiet. My sweet nurse said, It's okay, darling. Go see your friend. I sat and held Stevie's hand while he slept, then left a note that I would return in the morning. Back in my hotel, I called Stevie's sister to make sure she knew what was going on. She had just left New York that morning and was arranging to have Stevie transported to a hospital near his hometown. One of the odd ironies of the AIDS crisis was that rural hospitals had emerged as the best place for people with AIDS to get decent care. In the cities where AIDS was centered, hospitals were overburdened and their federal subsidies had been slashed by Reagan. It was Stevie and thousands of gay men like him who had to pay the price. In a small-town hospital near his family, Stevie finally received the excellent care he needed and recovered well enough to spend a few more months with his family. A few months later, I had just graduated from Northwestern University and had been promoted from translator to senior project manager in charge of Russian media projects. Mostly, I worked in the Russian news industry. I had just escorted the Soviet Minister of Finance, Valentin Pavlov, and his wife on a flight from Moscow to New York. The minister and his wife were the most repulsive human beings I have ever encountered. When we arrived at the Plaza Hotel, the restaurant was already closed, but the minister and his very entitled wife insisted on a full lobster dinner. The general manager had to recall the chef to cook for them in the middle of the night. When I finally had the two of them fed and in their rooms, I found a message waiting for me to call a friend in Chicago immediately. Stevie was dead. It's never easy. Every time someone I love dies, my reaction surprises me. There's no consistency at all. But that night, I was angry. Angry that men I loved were dying. Angry that no one in America seemed to care when thags died. Angry that by some accident of birth, I was tied to a passport that kept me in a country run by uncivilized heathen hypocrites who actually had the nerve to call themselves Christians. 
May God save us from the hypocrisies of America's religious right. It was around two or three in the morning, but I left my room at the Plaza Hotel and walked up Fifth Avenue along Central Park all the way back up to Lenox Hill Hospital on 78th Street, talking to Stevie the whole way as if he were walking beside me. I looked up at the million-dollar penthouses overlooking the park and said, if this disease were killing them, rich, straight, white people instead of us, then Reagan would do something about it. But he did nothing. Not one dollar was spent for research. He wouldn't even say the word AIDS in public until the first straight person was confirmed to have HIV. Three days later, Reagan declared AIDS a national emergency and poured tens of millions into finding a cure. Matilda Krim, the mother of the HIV-AIDS movement, as we lovingly remember her, was married to one of Hollywood's most powerful film moguls, producer Arthur B. Krim. During the first months of the crisis, Dr. Krim told her good friend Ronald Reagan he urgently needed to fund research into the mysterious disease killing the gay community. She warned President Reagan that if this epidemic wasn't addressed right away, while it was still in its early stages and isolated to the gay community, it would inevitably become a pandemic that would spread to the wider community and kill tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of heterosexuals. At that point, 4,661 AIDS cases and 2,085 AIDS-related deaths had been recorded in the United States. According to UN AIDS, as of 2020, there are approximately 79.3 million people who have been diagnosed with HIV-AIDS. Half of them are dead. Reagan's chilling AIDS policy, or lack thereof, became known as intentional omission. But intentional omission was not a passive act. Not only did President Reagan make the intentional decision to ignore AIDS, but he knew full well his policy was in ever-increasing numbers killing more and more of the fags he so famously hated. The only thing Dr. Krim got wrong in her dire prediction was the number of zeros behind the estimates of how many people would die as a result of Reagan's policy of intentional omission. It wasn't tens or hundreds of thousands who died. It was tens of millions. Many years later, I met Dr. Krim at a fundraiser in her famously fabulous townhouse on the Upper East Side, not far from Lenox Hill Hospital. Her private screening room was literally four times larger than my Chelsea apartment. I wish I had asked her how she had hoped to convince Reagan to do the right thing, given his hatred of homosexuals. Reagan and his good pal Charlton Heston were famous for their personal rants as well as their professionally organized political campaigns attacking the gay community. The night Stevie died, the tempest in my brain was consumed with these thoughts and with so much anger. Walking around New York in the middle of the night in the late 80s wasn't safe at all, but I figured if anyone tried to hurt me, I would just tell them I had AIDS, and they would probably leave me alone. It wasn't true, but somehow I felt so guilty that I didn't have AIDS. 
I had been so preoccupied with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fight of my Russian forebears that I was missing the defining moment of my own generation. People I loved were dying all around me. The gay community was finally standing up and screaming, no more. The movement was best described years later by Tony Kushner in his Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Angels in America, when he said, we won't die secret deaths anymore. All around me, people were taking a stand, but I hadn't been to a single ACT UP demonstration. Gays and our allies were getting arrested smuggling AZT in the country, getting arrested at die-ins, taking on their legislators, demanding funding for research and medication, fighting anti-gay legislation, and even introducing gay rights bills. I felt guilty that I wasn't doing my part, but that night I vowed that would change. I think people forget how bad the poverty and crime had become in American cities in those years. Sure, in the heartland things were grand, and conservatives do love to wax on about the wonderful Reagan years and his shining city on a hill. Whenever they do, I just shake my head and wonder, were they on a different planet than the rest of us? The answer, of course, is yes. They were in their very own little parallel reality. They somehow didn't see the scores of patients with mental illness Reagan had kicked out of the institutions making them homeless, or the cardboard villages that existed in every back alley of New York, Chicago, Miami, L.A., and they certainly did not see the ever-increasing number of gay men dying of AIDS. On the rare occasion they did address the issue, it was merely to remind us we were getting what we deserved for being fags. But mostly, they just didn't notice. My favorite soundbite that best describes what the Reagan years were like was something I overheard when I was leaving the Congress Theater in Chicago where I had just seen Les Miserables. I was walking behind a woman in a beautiful full-length black gamma mink coat and her husband in his Botany 500 suit and cashmere car coat. She turned to her husband, and literally, as she stepped over a homeless person whom she did not see, she said, I had no idea it was so bad in France. No wonder they had a revolution. I wanted to scream, look down, lady, look down, right here, right now in Chicago, today, look down. We, America's gay children of the 70s and 80s, had started off with so much promise and such hope. We honestly convinced ourselves we would be the generation who gave the world gay rights. Instead, we became the generation obliterated by AIDS. Ironically, it was our very suffering and dying that would eventually win the fight for LGBTQ rights in America. But that was little help to us then. This is what was rolling around in my head that night. Anger, resentment, fear, and unspeakable grief. But mostly, I was just angry. And I walked and walked and walked. There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain goes on and on. Empty chairs at empty tables, 
Now my friends are dead and gone. Here they talked of revolution. Here it was they lit the flame. Here they sang about tomorrow, and tomorrow never came. From the table in the corner, they could see a world reborn, and they rose with voices ringing. I can hear them now, the very words that they had sung became their last communion on that lonely barricade at dawn. Oh, my friends, my friends, forgive me that I live and you are gone. There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain goes on and on. Phantom faces at the window. Phantom shadows on the floor. Empty chairs at empty tables where my friends will meet no more. Oh, my friends, my friends, don't ask me what your sacrifice was for. Empty chairs at empty tables where my friends will sing no more. Empty chairs at empty tables from the Miserable, composed by Claude Michel Schomburg, libretto by Alain Boublil, based on a novel by Victor Hugo. My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this guy. <laughs>